Brewer with the Northwest Area Health Education Center podcast called Healthcare Insights in Northwest North Carolina. My guest today is Randall Bachman. He's the licensed clinical addiction specialist and clinical supervisor intern and program director at Integrative Care of Greater Hickory. His colleague, Corey Richardson, has been uh, on the podcast twice now, and uh, we're going to talk about updates in what Integrative Care uh, of Greater Hickory is doing in the uh, midst of this 10 months into this uh, global pandemic and how that's affected their services. But first, I'm going to get a couple of terms out of the way. S-A-I-O-P stands for uh, Abuse Intensive Outpatient Programs. Did I get that right? Yes. And we have S-A-C-O-T, which is a Substance Abuse Comprehensive Outpatient Treatment. So we'll probably talk about some of these things um, as related to uh, the services Integrated Care of Greater Hickory uh, provides. Um, but first of all, welcome, Randall. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I guess um, let's just go right into it. How has COVID-19 impacted your services? The first and most obvious way to answer that is that we back in uh, January, we had talked about possibly adding some telehealth services and we looked at it and we said, well, no, we know a lot of the industries go in that direction. We feel like it's going to be a struggle to maintain that really the engagement with the, with the patients that we'd like to see. And in September, so we did a lot of the research and we had a lot of the things kind of set up to, well, this is what we would do. This is because we were looking into it. And then, uh, Come March, it was like, okay, that thing we said we uh, didn't want to look at doing, let's do it. Uh, because it was really the only way to keep people safe and be able to do it. Um, and so we've had to figure out how to take some of these different levels of care and convert them to a primarily online, not no longer in-person format. And, and have you, how have you found your, uh, your, your client respond to that? telehealth versus their their normal experience of group settings and things like that? Um, it can be a mixed bag. Uh, we have some uh, who have really, really enjoyed it. Some uh, find it really beneficial, uh, especially people who are working, people who had transportation issues. Uh, one of the biggest barriers that we actually saw with a lot of the patients who were in those really intensive services, the uh, SAIOP or the SACOT, uh, they had a lot of transportation issues that made it very difficult for them to attend treatment. Uh, the SAIOP meets three days a week. The SACOP meets five days a week. And for somebody who doesn't have their own vehicle, who's dependent on transportation from other people, uh, or is having to use uh, public transportation or other means, being able to do it through a phone was a huge benefit in, in that regard. Um, I was going to say, let's back up. I think I jumped ahead a little too soon. Can you just give us the 30,000-foot view of integrative care of, of, of Greater Hickory? Because it is a, a pretty novel, or stand, I should say, standout program um, in our state. And if you could um, you know, get on your promotional uh, soapbox for a minute and give us, give us the uh, elevator pitch. Uh, sure. Uh, the agency's been around for... Our, uh, a little over a decade now, it grew out of a primary care uh, 
uh, primary care facility where uh, our CEO, Corey Richardson, was starting off as an LCAS, and he saw the need for uh, some substance abuse counseling services amongst a lot of the, the patients that they were seeing. And so they started doing some of that, and then they added the, uh, the medication-assisted treatment using the buprenorphine, uh, naloxone, uh, the, the opioid agonist product to uh, help people uh, deal with the withdrawals and help people get sober off of those. Uh, from there, uh, re- it just grew and grew, and eventually the, uh, in 2017, uh, rebranded as Integrated Care of Greater Hickory. Uh, it was 2017 or 2018 that we started seeing the need for some of those enhanced services uh, led us into adding the uh, the SAIOP, the SACOT. We started adding peer support services. Uh, the at its core, we are a 12-step facilitation facility that aims at getting people engaged with the community and engaged in the recovery mindset uh, and eventually coming off that medication and uh, rejoining the community independently, but maintaining that 12-step connection for that support and that relapse prevention piece. So community support is such a huge uh, part of that recovery. Um, how how has the whole social distance, social isolation impacted all that? Well, when we're looking at each of those different levels of care, you determine placement using the ASAM criteria. And what that is one of those main six criteria that you use to determine level of placement, uh, especially determining uh, what level of outpatient care someone needs. And now that Uh, It's so much harder for someone to engage in spiritual supports. A lot of churches have gone to entirely online services. You don't get that same kind of engagement. A lot of your AA, NA, uh, the meetings have no longer been doing in-person meetings or are doing um, limited number in person. Uh, So we've been having to help people get transitioned to doing uh, some of the online meetings, but you've also we've some of the things we've had to do is increase some of the numbers of the communication we have back and forth with uh, with a lot of our patients. Uh, calling, texting. Uh, I have a number of my patients who, especially early on in their program, they're responsible for texting me every day to let me know that they did a meeting or how they're doing. Um, that's something that previously I would have been trying to help that person get linked up with a sponsor. But. It's been a lot harder for people to get engaged with the sponsor and find a sponsor during this time because you can't hang out outside and uh, wait in the parking lot of an online meeting, which is a lot of times how people would have some of those conversations uh, in some of those 12 step meetings. Yeah, I could see how that would certainly impact. What about um, services like uh DSS, CPS, and probation, some of the law enforcement aspects of, of, of um, you know, your agency and tied in with other agencies. How has that uh, um, impact been impacted? We try to stay very connected with each of those different groups to try to make sure that we're coordinating uh, with them as best we can. Uh, Early on in COVID, I know that the numbers of referrals we were actually receiving from uh, DSS or or probation uh, would actually drop because there was a lot of push for limiting that face-to-face contact. 
Uh, and so, uh, for example, back uh, end of last school year, when all the kids came home, well, one of the primary sources that DSS would spot and identify problems is through the school system. The, the teachers, the school staff would identify the issue. They would make that referral to DSS. DSS would go out and investigate, realize, okay, this is the nature of the concern. We need to get someone some substance abuse counseling. Well, if the child's not going to school, if the child's at home, no one might be really be identifying that issue. So that's one of the ways that COVID has really impacted the community that a lot of times doesn't really get identified is there's less engagement with some of these supports just because people are not around each other to see some of the issues. Yeah, that, I've heard that um, being a, definitely uh, having an impact on um, being that the school system was such a, a, a big, uh, what would you say, nexus for for connecting those those services. Um, let's see, uh, what about inpatient services? I mean, like, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, in, inpatient, uh, outpatient detox, um, housing, can you just kind of riff on all those areas of, of and, and has it been a greater need this time, I mean, during this time, and also as we approach the holidays, that's usually a kind of a, a time of year that, that people are impacted by? Well, I think especially right now, we're, uh, one of the issues that I keep seeing come up with a lot of my patients is they're used to going and spending fam uh, Christmas with family. And now they can't. And that's caused uh, pretty significant amounts of depression uh, amongst a lot of patients because they're seeing Christmas traditions being broken. I've been doing the same thing for 15 years and now I can't. Um, in terms of how it's affected inpatient, we don't, um, integrated care doesn't offer any direct inpatient services. Uh, we have had, I think, a couple occasions where we've had to help someone get into detox. Haven't seen a huge delay uh, with the, a lot of the partners that we work with uh, in terms of getting people into inpatient services, but I have heard that from some other places because there is a lot of COVID testing that has to happen first. Um, they have to make sure that it's going to be safe to bring that person in. Um, There were three different ones that you said there, and I wanted to make sure I hit. Uh, well, is it housing? Y'all had booted in, in your holistic approach to, to recovery and, and, and all this. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So when uh, um, I think it was two might have been 2018 that we really started uh, when we opened up our Lincolnton site, one of the issues we really saw out there was a lack of recovery-based uh, sober living communities. And so and that's not to say that it doesn't exist. It's just that the need was greater than the supply. And so we set up a, a sober living apartment out there as a way of trying to provide that. And the Lincoln County, uh, um, the, the jail system, sheriff's department, everybody's been really great in working with us. Uh, because they've actually we've actually been able to take some people directly out of incarceration and have them come directly into that sober living. So they're not going back into the situation that caused them to relapse to begin with. Um, in Hickory, we actually were able to set up a more long term 
housing facility through uh, some HUD housing vouchers and through some other resources uh, that's going to allow us to keep uh, give people some recovery-based housing for a longer period of time with absolutely minimal cost to the person needing that care. But uh, this has been one of those issues that just in the last you know last uh, last five years, even long you know even longer, has been identified as one of those areas that there is such an enormous need for housing. Uh, it's one of the first things that you, t- you talk to somebody about when you, they start a recovery program is distancing yourself from the people that you used to use substances with, uh, getting out of the situations, getting out of the places where you used to use, uh, you know, people, places, and things. Did, really hard to distance yourself from those things when it's your brother across the hall and that's the only place you have to go. And so being able to make some of those uh, resources available has, I feel like been really beneficial to, and we do have a really good success rate for the people who come into those sober living communities. We see them do extremely well. Now, what was the demand like for that? And and do you have enough to meet the demand or is it just a constant struggle to, 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 to meet, the demand for housing? Uh, we tend to stay relatively full, um, but we do try to transition people out when they can, uh, when they're when they're safely able to do so and establish some independent living. Uh, with the longer term housing, there's less of a focus on transitioning them out. Uh, so it might be that the Lincoln 10 uh, sober living facility, uh, if somebody is needing some something longer term, we might help them get over to the Hickory facility, which is built for the more long term. So somebody who's first establishing recovery might come into our Lincolnton facility and then transition from there. What, what wraparound services are, are provided for that, like job training and job seeking and resume building, stuff like that? Um, just curious. Of, is what, what is uh, we do a lot of that through partner agencies, linking people up with uh, voc rehab, uh, we do have some peer support specialists. We haven't been able to do really very much of it directly. Uh, there's been a lot of phone contact with peer, uh, with our peer support specialists. Um, but being able to actually take people out and drive them around to help them actually fill out the applications um, is one of the things we've previously been able to do. Uh, you know, for housing, helping them get out and actually go and pick up the applications for the apartments. Um, Transportation remains an obstacle, and especially with COVID, we don't want to put anybody in a confined space like a vehicle. Uh, so it's been there's been a lot of stuff that's been done online, um, just finding what resources we can. Uh, it has, I think, forced everybody to <laughs> get to know the phone numbers a little bit better. Um, just in terms of linking up with uh, some of those resources. So how has that impacted the volume? Like, so you got telehealth set up, um, uh, you know, the phones uh, available. Um, what, how, how's the, what's the volume like? I mean, is, are, and are your systems and your processes um, straining under the load or, or have you scaled up to, to meet the demand? Um, you know, how's that going? We've scaled to meet the demand. Um, 
And like all things, it, it does fluctuate. Uh, we do tend to see fewer referrals in the summertime. People uh, have a harder time kind of identifying the unmanageability of their addiction uh, when it's warm outside. When it starts getting a little bit colder, I'd better do something or I'm going to be sleeping in some snow. Um, I mean, to put it very extremely bluntly, uh, that it, it, it does drive a lot of desperation where people are much more aware of I have to do something or else the consequences could be much more severe. Um, and so it, we do see you know, we've had a pretty recent, pretty decent influx of assessments over the last couple of weeks. Uh, I know poor Corey's been uh, been getting killed with the assessments here lately. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'll say, you know, it seems like you have a pretty um, amazing facility and certain set of services that you provide there. What what other are there other um, is that model uh, duplicated across the state um, in other places? We have four locations now. Uh, we are in uh, Gastonia. Lincolnton, Hickory, and we opened up Statesville uh, this past summer. Uh, and we, uh, if it's not broke, you don't fix it. Uh, we've seen really, really good outcomes through the services, uh, the, the array of services we provide. Uh, so we try to make sure that those are available at each of those locations. Uh, it has been harder to, uh, I guess, to kind of follow up on your previous question. Uh, it has been harder to keep people engaged uh, due to um, a lot of the a lot of the telehealth. Uh, and so, if somebody's coming in and they're not used to uh, doing the therapy, and the, the the telehealth can be challenging, they may struggle with a lot of the technology aspects of it. Uh, so, some of the things that we found that are just tremendously beneficial is actually setting up and having some very, very clear standards for what we expect during those telehealth sessions. Uh, when this started, there were, uh, everybody would continue. Uh, all of my patients for about the first two months, uh, they would still present to their telehealth sessions as though they were coming into the facility. And then it was uh, it was like about two months into a lot of the social distancing and uh, the telehealth, everybody realized, you know what? I can do this in my pajamas. There's a degree of engagement that happens when somebody actually gets up, takes a shower, gets dressed, gets prepared as though they're going somewhere just to go ahead and be better prepared. You know, having pen and paper ready so that uh, if we're doing some kind of a written activity, uh, they can be ready to go ahead and participate in that. Um, even something as simple as making sure that the, that they're in a place where they can be alone, uh, someplace quiet, uh, someplace that, it, you know, is really conducive to being able to focus. Um, I have had to make use of a lot more homework, a lot more journaling in terms of keeping people involved. Uh, like I mentioned, uh, having them text me. So, um, a couple months ago, I had somebody who was really struggling with staying engaged with the program. So uh, every day, uh, instead of just doing the gratitude list of writing out 10 things that they were grateful to have as part of their life, which is a homework that we a lot of times will start people with, uh, she actually had to text it to me to show me that it was being done. And then she had to text me the topic of the, uh, the just for today for that day. And so that was one of those things where, OK, here's some accountability that I can build in. 
uh, instead of you coming up to the agency three days a week, uh, you know, here's something where I, you can still remain engaged with your program. And I'll, I would get those texts even on the weekends. Unfortunately, she started, uh, she had a job and she went into work at 4 a.m. So I was getting those texts in the middle of the night, but uh, you do what you got to do. Following question to that is as a counselor um, and, and a facilitator of, of telehealth, um, do you find it harder, or not harder, but that it requires more preparation than, than it used to? Um, in some aspects, yes. Uh, but it also does de deliver a degree of freedom because uh, if they make a reference to some, um, something that I may not be prepared for, I immediately have all my electronic resources, uh, all the worksheets that I've collected over the years are now scanned into PDF form, and I can really quickly just send that over to them in, a, in an email. I don't have to turn around, find it, print it, or dig through a filing cabinet to try and pull that resource out. Um so I think just staying organized with a lot of the resources that are available. Um, I had a patient share with me that she'd been diagnosed with a medical uh, medical issue that I'd never heard of before. And if I'm already looking at a computer screen, I can shift over into another tab and have a basic understanding to where they're not having to sit there and run me through the basics. We can immediately kind of uh, segue into, okay, what is you know, what are your emotions like? How are you processing that? How are you going to deal with this without, you know, it, address the chronic pain or the, the pain that's coming with this medical issue without resorting back to substance use? Uh, how are you going to deal with the stress without resorting back to substance use? A, a lot of those kind of things where I don't have to, uh, it can be more focused if you're prepared, I guess is the the short answer to a the short version of long answer. Well, so speaking of that, noticed any trends or metrics that would suggest relapse and in use has gone up or down um, since the change to telehealth? Um, I think one of the big things uh, is we do quarterly screening for depression and anxiety. Um, Uh, saying that just now, I'm, I'd be very curious to go back and actually look at the uh, look at the charting for average scores on uh, the it's anxiety, depression. We do screenings for readiness to change, uh, social determinants of health, uh, trauma, um, and so we kind of watch for all those things uh, on a quarterly basis. Uh, I think that if somebody is struggling in one of those aspects, especially the social determinants. Uh, that does highlight a need for some kind of other intervention to go ahead and address those concerns. Um, it's well known at this at this point that suicide rates have gone up substantially during COVID-19. Um, I think that a lot of that is as much due to the depression and isolation as it is due to the fear. And uh, I would actually des uh, describe a lot just based on my work patients, I would describe a lot of the experience people are having with COVID-19 as traumatic. Uh, trauma is very uh, kind of self-determined in terms of what becomes traumatic to somebody. But when I'm talking to somebody who is uh, 60 years old and is afraid to leave their home, 
and hasn't been able to leave their home due to fear over what may be out there. I would describe that as a traumatic experience, uh, regardless of whether they were afraid of a, a virus or an ex-husband. But whatever the cause of that fear is, it, it's still individually traumatic to that person. And I think approaching some a lot of uh, the counseling right now from a very trauma-informed uh, perspective can be very, very beneficial. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow, I didn't think about all that. Um, now, you, you did mention social determinants is that you know we've we've heard about the the digital divide as far as technology access um, is concerned has that been a, a problem for some of your clients to get laptops or, or iPads or smartphones and internet access reliable enough to 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 handle these kind of calls um very early in COVID there were some challenges with that uh we were able to get a supply of some uh, very cheap cell phones that were uh, provided to us by Partners Behavioral Health uh, that were actually for persons with uh, no income, low income, no means to be able to do it. Um, we were able to actually go in and set up the telehealth portals on those and then provide those to those patients free of charge. Um just as a as an alternative means for them to go ahead and be able to access some of that, uh, but we do still have some patients who, uh, uh, for example, yesterday uh, they were having some kind of an internet issue, and so the the session was conducted over the phone instead of through a telehealth audio video portal, uh, which would obviously have been preferable. But I think letting somebody know. It, Right now, letting somebody know that you that you care enough to continue to reach out and it's not just, oh, you're having a tech issue. Well, I'll see you next week. Uh, maintaining that engagement is going to be even more important than it uh, than it ever was. Now, I would think that seeing the patient like like we're seeing each other now virtually um, would be a big part of, you know, I guess, you know, kind of nonverbal assessment, if you will. Um, Oh, absolutely. Kind of checking in on them and to see their facial expressions and, and their overall, you know, glow or lack of glow, I guess, would be a um, you know, non-scientific well, term. But. Uh, when you said that, one of the things that actually ran through my head is uh, actually doing the assessment process. Uh, if you don't have uh, some kind of uh, visual on the person, it's very hard to know uh, it, what the, some of those physical symptoms that they may not be even realizing are. Uh, if somebody reports a history of uh, benzodiazepine use and they're not aware of what those withdrawal symptoms are, but you look at them and they say, well, I haven't, I haven't used anything in two days and they're sweating and they're going to go ahead and smoke a cigarette and you're watching the cigarette start to shake in their hands. Well, that's going to be a very different situation than you know, if you didn't see some of those symptoms and you would never catch those just through an, uh, a telephone call. So really paying attention to some of those smaller issues and being able to spot some of those withdrawal symptoms. Um, as somebody who absolutely won't make eye contact with the camera um, during the session. It's. What, what's going on? 
Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. If you if you can hide behind just your voice on the phone, it mm-hmm. would be easy to to hide some things that you don't want to to disclose. Um, so yeah, I can see how that'd be challenging. Now, um, you know, you mentioned uh, smoking. How far in behavior change do you go with your clients? I mean, I know probably the priority is to get them off you know the the, the addictive substances uh, that you know that can disrupt their normal lives in society um, do you take that further once someone gets clean and sober <laughs> excuse me um, do y'all do y'all go into other substances like uh, you know nicotine cessation and anything like that uh, we do have uh, we do some work with smoking cessation uh, we try to do uh, something like that with some uh, certain programs. We do that uh, as often as uh, once a month just to go ahead and make sure that everybody gets some of that information. Uh, generally, it's about every three months that we go ahead and touch on some of those issues. Uh, but if we see somebody who their life is going to be much more significantly affected, uh, somebody who has COPD and is reporting uh, increased difficulty, uh partially linked to the cigarette smoking. Um, we might work with that person on a plan to go ahead and start reducing uh, how many cigarettes per day they're smoking. Um, uh, help them. And I've actually spent a session previously helping somebody get access to the quit now line. Uh, they were very scared to make that phone call on their own. So they did it with me right there next to them. So that if they had a question, they didn't know how to answer. Uh, I could kind of guide them through answering that question with them. Yeah, I think I I look at it from a perfect world's standpoint, like, okay, let's get your main problem solved, and then let's help you on this road to a a life of wellness and change all your behaviors like nutrition and fitness and smoking cessation and all those things. So, um, which brings up the question, what, um, access to medical records do you have for your clients, if any? Like, I mean, do you see like what their blood pressure or any other things that may, they may be dealing with that you could include in counseling and behavior? Um, so, pre-COVID, we would actually do on-site visits uh, r- very regularly, and we actually, I could look and we would have access to the uh, the blood pressure, or the pulse rate, uh, a lot of those basic vitals. Uh, we can also read the doctor's notes uh, from when they see uh, see our medical staff, and we do medical exams with all patients, uh, even those that are not receiving the the medication assisted treatment for opiates. Or um, we also do the medication assisted treatments for alcohol. Uh, but if they're not receiving uh, seeing our medical staff for either of those, we do still do medical exams. Um, uh, we do still uh, do observed drug screens. Uh, they come in, they do those live with us. Uh, and so having access, to, I mean, that's one of the most important metrics you can have as a substance abuse professional. Um, the, I will say that uh, it's been more of a push to make more things available in our electronic health record. Um, we still like the paper charts. Um, We've, we had tried to avoid going to the uh, the electronic service notes for counseling sessions because it's much better to sit with a piece of paper and make a few notes during session than it was to sit with a computer in front of you. But now the computer's right there, so it did kind of lead itself into uh, more and more of the electronic uh, 
note keeping for that. Um, trying to make sure I answer all aspects of the question. I feel like I'm missing some. Oh, that's okay. Um, I guess just again from a holistic standpoint. Well, let me back off that and take the opposite end. Like, when do you feel comfortable like releasing a client? Because it seemed like it would seem like in behavioral health that the goal with a lot of agencies for helping the goal would be to reduce the number of clients over time and not increase the number of clients. So to people self-sufficient and becoming a a functioning member of society again um, without the things that brought them to you in the first place. What, what metrics do y'all look at to say, you know, you're doing great. I think it's time for you to, you know, to, to, to go on, or is it just a lifelong uh, relationship? It's very, very patient determined. Um, we have some people who uh, they get to a certain point in their step work. They've engaged in the 12 step community. They've built the support. Uh, they've mended what relationships they can with their family. They've got those natural supports are effectively engaged. Uh, they've addressed the underlying uh, mental health issues. They're no longer having the same symptoms of anxiety, depression. Uh, if we were prescribing something for um, like an antidepressant, they've been able to transition that over to their primary care. If they, it, it's, it's that kind of ongoing process where somebody does disengage. But we also have some people who have been with us for quite a few years now, and they want to use us as a recovery home. Uh, they like they like continuing to have that individual therapy session once a month. They like to have uh, because we do we do decrease the frequency of the individual therapy as time goes on. Um, and they like having that group therapy support. Uh, and so. We have some people who've been with us for a long period of time where they've built those kind of bonds. And that's just it's the same to them as it would be to go to an AA meeting once a week. They're willing to continue to uh, do uh, to access that service. They want to continue to access that service. They they don't want to stop. We don't force them to. Right. um, Just kind of get some more of your personal approach. what are some things, I mean, you, you know, I know that the 12 steps and, and, and those models, what are some things that you provide uh, Randall Bachman's approach to counseling um, that, that, that's your kind of your go-to or things that you really try to get out in sessions that you want to impart or teach your clients? Um... I came into counseling uh, from a very cognitive behavioral. Uh, I stole a little bit from D, uh, DBT, uh, very heavily reality therapy. And, and so that's very much colored the way that I present a lot of the 12 steps. Uh, we do maintain fidelity to that model. So I try to limit what I'm doing and make sure that everything relates back. Probably the greatest randalism that I do in, and don't ever quote me on that, anybody, please. I don't ever want to hear that word again. Um, (laughs) Is just understanding how step one, admitting powerlessness can also relate to our emotions. We don't necessarily control what emotion we experience. We don't always control the situation that happens, but our emotions can be very, very effective information. So that Step one concepts of rigorous honesty, accepting powerlessness over the unmanageability, 
um, and, and then getting help with addressing that. Well, that also applies to uh, a lot of times to our emotions. Our emotions are very, very helpful guides to what our response is. Uh, my anger lets me know that my boundaries have been crossed. I can respond in a positive way by enforcing that boundary, by communicating that boundary, or if necessary, by setting a firmer boundary to keep the person who won't respect that boundary away from doing so again. Or I can respond in a very negative way, in a way that causes further harm, further discord, further difficulties and issues in, in my life and in my relationships. Um, where where do you see, Randall, uh, where do you see uh, your motivation and your, um, I guess, uh, ability to stay focused and stay motivated and stay helpful in, and avoid caregiver burnout? This is what I'm getting to. Like, what do you read? What do you look? What do you listen to? Those kind of things that keep you fresh when you go in every day. Um, one past experience with having burnt out. Um, <laughs> really taught me a lesson because I was the guy in college that every time they would uh, have a conversation about counselor burnout, it was in the back of my head of it's not really a thing. They just say that to people. Other people don't deal with stress as well as I do. Uh, I, if I think about the things I've dealt with in the past, this is going to be nothing. I'll never burn out. That's not going to be me. Uh, until I woke up one day and I was like, I, whoa, <laughs> um, just dreading going, going in uh, to a job that I love. Um, so the, one of the, uh, the, one of the best ways is just being honest with ourselves about our current stress level and, and recognizing some of those warning signs, uh, we got into the helping field because we love people. When we start to hate being around people, that's a big problem. Um, when we start to dread doing the thing that we decided to do because we love doing it, it's time to be honest with ourselves and step back or make a change to doing something a little bit different. Uh, but I also do a lot of self-care just in terms of um, when I go home, and this is going to sound kind of kind of odd, but I... I learned that uh on the 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 employer i had prior to integrated care there would i would always go across some railroad tracks on the way home and every time i went across those railroad tracks it was time to put the day's work behind me and one of the things that i've started doing in the last three four years of self-care is when i get home um i run everybody out of the kitchen and i take about an hour to myself and i cook um so much of this job is analytical where we're paying such heavy attention to what somebody is doing. We're looking, we're analyzing, we're connecting the dots. It's nice to just go home and do something creative. I don't follow recipes. Sometimes it doesn't turn out amazing. Uh, overall, it usually turns out edible. Uh, sometimes there's a pizza order, but not often. Um, but it's, getting out of my headspace of where I've been and doing something radically different. Uh, and then also taking time with family, going on, um, doing hikes, spending time doing things that we enjoy. That's great. Now I'm going to switch, uh, flip that over and say, what is the, what do you learn from your uh, clients on a, um, that, that, that stick with you? Like what are some of the valuable lessons that you've learned from them? Um, 
Well, one of the things with 12-step counseling is I feel like we're constantly learning from everybody. Um, we build more and more of an understanding of uh, just each of those steps. Uh, trying to come up with a particularly good example for you, and I'm kind of drawing a blank because you put me on the spot. But um, I think just being open and seeing how different people view life. Um, they may, and it can be the oddest thing where somebody says something to you. Um, for example, I, I had asked a question to somebody about um, they would always track their clean time in, in the number of days. And they, uh, they were up in the, uh, the 2000 plus range of days of tracking their, 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 the length of their sobriety. And I asked him, why is that so important that you always know? And he always knew it off the top. Uh, a, a lot of people use apps or different means to try and calculate it. He always knew. And I asked him how, how do you keep that in mind that a day that was so miserable still has that much importance that you know the number of days? Um, and he basically told me that because that's exactly what it is. It was a day that was so miserable. And so I feel like we just constantly have to keep learning. Um, and he, as long as he keeps track of that number of days, he, he knows he doesn't want to go back there. It's one more marker of one more day that he is away from being back in that place. But he also, he, in his words, he also said he knows he can be back there tomorrow if he doesn't continue to do the things that he has to do. Yeah, so um, being a caregiver, being a counselor, um, how do you maintain uh, your professionalism? I mean, I know it's probably a constant challenge for any anybody in behavioral health is just, you know, being the person that facilitates people to come out and be honest, but also to be, you know, to, to be a, I guess, a, a, you know, a solid force for change. Um, you know, what, what kinds of things do you do um, or, or have you learned about yourself um, doing this and how, how you, you know, maintain that love for what you do? Um, well, the first thing that we're kind of ran through my head as you're talking about is the importance of genuineness uh, with the way we approach counseling. Um, making sure that we are staying genuine to ourselves and you, you said maintaining professionalism. And I, I was afraid you were going to ask, how would you say that your patients may uh, say that you do with maintaining professionalism? Because the answer was going to have to be poorly because I have a terrible sense of humor. Um, but at the same time, you, you can ha have a lot of meat on the bones to the session and still have some flavor to it. Uh, and th that's really important for ke uh, keeping somebody engaged is let, letting them see that you're also a person. Um, being able just to kind of keep a lot of those, that, that's a lot of all those pieces together. I feel like I lost the question there. Well, it's okay. I mean, it was it was kind of not a defined question as I think about it. Um, but what I guess on the opposite side of that, how do you handle 
or, or what's a strategy when you know someone's just full of it and they're not being honest and how do you how do you help how do you without calling them out on it how do you call them out on it and get them to recognize what they're doing a lot of that's going to depend on the strength of the therapeutic relationship um if it's somebody that is newer to the program that I, I haven't established the, the relationship to where I can do as much of the direct challenging. I may work around the topic and come back to it and then say, but wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense because before you told me, um, but some of my patients would also uh, tell you that I'm prone to looking at the, uh, the bottom of my shoes during session to check for BS. So directly call it out if i have the strength of the relationship to be able to do so yeah i mean because it it seems you know from what little i know about counseling um you know that that would be important to recognize when there's dishonesty and how how to turn that around into being authentic and 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 being true to themselves most people are not good liars and they're going to let you know um, throughout the course of the conversation. Uh, I've done more than one assessment where somebody's come back to me two thirds of the way through the assessment and said, you know what? I wasn't honest. Let me go ahead and tell you this. And that's on the first contact with them. Most people don't want to be dishonest. Um, A good liar can get you to believe something that you know is not true. Um, and counselors are not immune to that. Sometimes we do buy into things. Sometimes we do believe things. We, and, you know, when we look back on it later, we're like, wait a minute, what? why did I buy into that? Uh, a really great liar can make you want to believe something you know not to be true. And they actually get you to a point where you want to, you want what they're telling you to be true, even though you know it's not. And that it, that does happen where somebody actually gets us uh, kind of bought into it. Uh, but I think it again goes back to a lot of times the honesty and the awareness with ourselves of, okay, what's going on? And this is also a disease that facilitates lying. I mean, they have they had to lie to themselves to to stay in it. Uh, why would I be expect anything different or anything better than the way that they treated themselves? Um, well, it, this is a disease that is very secretive in nature, and they're going. I mean, they've had to lie for so long especially early on in the recovery process, why would I expect to be any different? Why would I expect them to be any more truthful to me than they were with the last 10 people who, after they told them the truth, said they didn't want anything to do with them? It's going to be terrifying for them to have that level of honesty with us, but we do, we can do what we can to encourage it by being open, honest with them, very genuine and making it a very non-confrontational, uh, uh, very, um, unconditional positive regard what what <laughs> things happen during your day that gives you joy and give you satisfaction that you're doing the right thing like i, I could see how you know uh, counseling could you know, wear you down and burn you out but what are those things that you really grasp onto during the day that that you know reinforce yeah I, I'm, I'm making a difference i'm, I'm I chose the right career path and, and this gives me uh, energy to continue on. 
Um, you do see the successes in your patients. Um, that is one of the nice things about substance abuse counseling is it's a lot easier to measure a lot of the improvement um, than it is with uh, some of the more mental health issues. Uh, you don't usually have somebody who's tracking of saying that, you know, July, July 4th, 2018 was the last time I ever felt depressed. But they might know absolutely that that's the last time they used methamphetamine. Uh, so you see people uh, make that progress. You see them start to make those changes. You hear them. You They talk about having gotten back a job. You see some of those successes. And that does help you feel a little bit better. But ultimately, if kind of one of the comments you made earlier is that this is the only business I know of that helping fields is the only uh, industry I know of that's continually trying to put itself on a business. Uh, if we're, if the helping fields were ever fully successful, there'd be no need for us. We'd have helped everybody and yay. All right. Time to retire. Um, a lot of the times we'll never see the impact that we have with somebody because even if they relapse and leave a program or they just disappear on us, we may not know what has stuck with them. And so understanding that we have no control over patient outcomes uh, in a very meaningful way, it's going to be purely dependent on them. All we can do is the absolute best we can do. Uh, the outcome are going to be determined by what the patient how the patient responds, and very significantly, that's going to be de uh, determined by fidelity to the model, whether or not we've imparted the skill set for them to then be able to take that information and benefit from it as time goes on. Um, you mentioned a specific substance there. Are there any ebbs and flows or trends that you're seeing um, with what's out there now, what people are struggling with, um, you know, in your service area specifically or across the state in general? Um, I know Corey, when we talked uh, months ago, he, he was worried that there was going to be a resurgence as the opioids kind of get somewhat under control perhaps there was going to be a resurgence in methamphetamine and other speed kind of things have you noticed any trends or or or, or noticeable upticks in any particular area um i would have to say just as awareness of the opioid issue has grown a lot of people still don't realize how the severity of the stimulant use issue in this um just in general, uh, I'm not aware of an area of the country that doesn't have it as an issue. You, you just don't hear about it as much as you do the opiates. Um, there are areas where there's a lot of funding available for state-funded uh, opioid treatment, but meth is king of those areas, and there's not as much available out there in terms of methamphetamine-specific uh, treatment funding sources. So I, I, uh, I will say I have seen an increase in alcohol use uh, over the length of COVID that has really impacted a lot of our patients. Yeah. Uh, is there, a, and I don't want to, I don't know if I'm treading on uh, dangerous territory. Is there a, uh, any type of delineation between the personality type or the type of uh person that that chooses stimulants over opioids over alcohol or is it just whatever's available 
Um, it's not an easy question to answer. Uh, is there a definitive personality type difference? I would have to check more into the literature, but n I've never heard of anything. Or characteristic, uh -huh. perhaps, of, of like situational or socioeconomic or um, you know education. Are, are there any delineations of who who's more at risk for what? I mean, I guess alcohol is like across the board, but I was thinking more delineation between opioids and say methamphetamine or cocaine um is there more addiction amongst low-income areas yes um at least in terms of what tends to make it to treatment to be seen a lot of times someone who has uh, greater economic resources they may not experience the same degree of uh, desperation to maintain an addiction that drives them lower and lower, uh, seeking them to use other substances, they may not see it as quickly. So you may not see as much of that until it is more severe. Um, it's not really a black and white question to be, um, are there risk factors for di uh, different types of addiction? Absolutely. Uh, if you don't live in an area where um, and you don't make friends with people who use methamphetamine, it's really hard to get addicted to something that you're never exposed to. Um, by the same token, if somebody uh, does have an interest in it, it is available virtually everywhere. Um, yeah, and that that's basically true from, the, I mean, any of those substances that somebody might potentially become addicted to uh, if they I think there's room for a much longer discussion and I would say a lot of research studies in two uh, personality characteristics influence uh, initial drug use um, or initial choice of uh, prior uh, priority drugs yeah I knew that was yeah. out there question uh, or at least taking a risk there um so, well, hopefully you just gave somebody a doctoral dis dissertation that they can go ahead and uh, get started on. <laughs> right. Right. So, um, yeah, we'll start wrapping up. What what uh, what does Randall like to do besides cook on his days off and hike and things like that? What hobbies do you have? What keeps you your mind off of counseling? <laughs> uh, spend time with the wife, and my stepson. Um We've got a new dog that keeps us pretty well terrorized and busy. So uh, it's uh, time with friends. Um, we like doing little board games. Uh, terrible, terrible, but big fan of Cards Against Humanity. Um, and I, honestly, one of the other things is just trying new experiences. Um, the place we went hiking most recently was a place I'd never been. Uh, I think there's a huge, there's something huge to be said in this world for not being afraid to try new experiences and, and just pushing yourself to continue to grow. Uh, I think that if you're not pushing yourself to continue to learn and grow in some type of way, uh, it's going to be very hard to be successful either as a counselor or just, just as a human being. When we start to think we've learned everything we need to learn, we're usually pretty well screwed. Well said, well said. Now, uh, what advice would you give to someone thinking about some young 
uh, person or young at heart that wants to get into counseling, um, especially substance abuse counseling, what, what, what would be the, a good piece of advice that you would impart? Um, I'll answer by saying this. There, there are three things I look for when I'm talking to a potential hire or a potential intern. Uh, experience can be gained. Uh, skills can be trained. You know, education can be can can be made available. So I don't tend to look as much at work history and education and the skills training because all of that stuff can be given to someone if they're willing to learn. A desire to learn and grow is one of those things that cannot be just given to somebody. Uh, so that that's one of the three things that I really look for is is a desire to continue to learn and grow in this field. I also look for somebody who. Uh, is going to be ethical, somebody who is going to unwaveringly practice in an ethical manner. Uh, if they have a history of making some ethically questionable decisions, that may not be the right career for them uh, because you're going to end up hurt doing a lot more damage than you do good. Uh, and that third thing is it has to be somebody who genuinely cares about the people that they're helping but does not take responsibility for how the person comes out of it. Um, it, it takes a very unique, uh, I guess, makeup to do counseling. You have to have a big heart and a thick skin. Connected, not attached. Exactly. Yes. Well, I think some of those traits that you described also uh, would fall into the successful uh, recovery uh, person too, to, to want to learn and grow want to have great moral character and uh, want to help the person that they're most responsible for, which is themselves. So mm -hmm. I think that's, that's, that's a good model for both sides of that equation. Um, finally, well, in the 12-step uh, phrase, you keep what you have by giving it away, it really does actually kind of address that even more. But I never really even considered that as a, uh, as being related to the recovery person, but it, you're absolutely right. Um, so on a final note, um, if you could change one thing in the world of uh, substance abuse recovery, what would it be? In one word? Paperwork. Um, <laughs> but uh, I guess the actual word would be stigma. Uh, the professionals in uh, counseling, both mental health counseling, substance abuse, developmental disability, all, all formats of counseling, we understand more and more that these are neurological diseases. But the world at large still sees a lot of this as a choice or as a moral weakness. And I think that if we could continue to address the stigma associated with struggling with one of these issues, we wouldn't just look at them and say, oh, they're crazy. There's something wrong with them They're yeah, and, and we would actually be more willing to help someone reach out and find that help that they really need and deserve. Well said, well said. Well, Randall, uh, the community is grateful for your services and I'm grateful for your time shared with us today. Oh, again, thank you for having me. And I appreciate it. Thanks, everyone. You can find more about Integrated Care uh, of Greater Hickory at the website, which is, you're supposed to take that. Oh, 
uh, www.integratedcarehickory.com. All right. So check the website out, doing great things. And thanks again, Randall. I appreciate it. Thank you.